Uncovering the Barriers to Recovery and Providing a Supportive Community. Part 1. Social determinants of health often create obstacles for people in recovery. In this two-part series, we discuss what determinants negatively impact the success of somebody's recovery. We will also discuss how generational and cultural behavior negatively impacts recovery. This is part one of the two-part series. We're excited to have a return guest with us today, Dr. Ryan Sarver. Welcome back to the conversation. Thanks for having me, Angelita. Yeah, this is a two-part series that we're going to be uh, focusing on today. We're going to be discussing how social determinants of health create barriers to recovery, as well as how to address them individually. So before we jump into the conversation, Dr. Sarver, please tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Angelita. So Dr. Ryan Sarver, I uh, am a board-certified family physician, fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians, and have extensive uh, training in addiction care. I have been uh, uh, responsible for uh, implementing and creating a robust uh, medication for opiate use disorder program at my hospital network. I have helped other hospital and clinic networks develop their own MOUD programs, and I am a common guest speaker around the state of uh, Indiana on issues uh, uh, where addiction, law, and society intersect. So I thank you for having me today. Thank you. So let's just jump in. So tell me, what social determinants of health do you find that create a negative impact on the success of someone's recovery? Yeah, you bet. And let's let's go ahead and define what are social determinants of health. So when we talk about social determinants, those are the things that in society that will either help somebody with their goal or will detract from their goal. So these are things like economic stability. What is their level of income? Are they in poverty? Are they employed? Their social and community context. What does their family uh, safety network look like? What culture do they come from? What is their ethnicity, their gender identity, their sexual orientation? Their food and nutrition, so access to clean water, access to healthy food, food literacy when it comes to health. How is their housing situation? Are they homeless? Do they have stable housing? Is it affordable? Is it a safe place to stay? Are they currently in a domestic violence situation? Do they have healthy living conditions? Is there lead paint? Is, uh, is there black mold? Do they have rodent infestations? Transportation, do they have regular access to safe transportation? Is it reliable? Their education, what is the grade level they finished? Are they literate? What language do they speak? In America, we're a melting pot or a tossed salad, as some sociologists will say. What is their language barrier? Do they speak a language that even has a written form? A lot of our patients here in uh, Jackson County are actually from the Chu tribe in Guatemala. Their language doesn't have a written form, so it's very difficult to have them sign written documents. What neighborhood and community context are they in? Are they rural? Are they urban? Do they have a lot of stigma? Are they in a uh, social group that is stigmatized within their neighborhood or within their community? What's their community culture? What's their healthcare access? And what is the quality of that healthcare in their given community? So all of these different things, economic, social, food, housing, transportation, education, neighborhood, and healthcare come together to create a social determinant of whether or not they will be successful with their healthcare goals. So of those identified determinants in that list, 
What do you find to be the most challenging for folks in recovery? Absolutely. And what we found using the biopsychosocial model of care is that every single one of those will impact a patient's ability to find and be in sustained recovery or have sustained uh, healthcare outcomes. Uh, addiction, as we know, is a chronic, relapsing, treatable disease of the brain. It's very similar to like diabetes type 2. While there might be a genetic component, it takes years of unhealthy living to develop and exacerbate that disease to where we see negative health consequences from it. As a physician, as a family physician, if I prescribe, let's say, a GLP-1 medication, a lot of people have heard about these, Ozempic, it's in the news. It's so popular that you can't even keep it on the shelves. But if they could go to the pharmacy because they have reliable transportation and they could, and it's in stock and they can get access to that medication, if their insurance doesn't pay for it, which many insurances aren't paying for it, it's $1,200 a month. We find that is the same case with medications for opiate use disorder. So there are multiple brands of buprenorphine, Suboxone, Subsolve, Sublocade. Some of them are up to $1,200 a month. If the insurance doesn't pay for it or they don't have the money to pay for that, then there's no way that they can have that medication and be in sustained recovery where economic stability is very important. As I said before, access to reliable transportation. Can they get to their appointments on time? In addiction care and uh, medication for opioid use disorder clinics, we have a much softer approach when it comes to patients showing up on time for appointments. So if somebody comes late, I'm not going to tell them they can't be seen for that day, which is a common occurrence in many clinics. If you're if you don't make your appointment, guess what? You're out of luck. You're going to have to reschedule for three months from now. That's something we have to do away with when, once we recognize that that's one of the social determinants of keeping somebody in long-term recovery. I'm not going to take away somebody's life-saving medication because their cab didn't show up on time. So that's something that we have to recognize as a clinician working with this population. Honestly, what we're coming to find out is it's with all populations because it doesn't matter where you're at in society, you're going to have some social determinant of health, which is going to make it less likely that you'll be successful in your healthcare goals. And as a clinician, if we can recognize that, we can do a better job of getting you the care and the comprehensive and holistic care plan that is going to be more likely to help you succeed. So tell me what kind of generational circumstances have created or additional challenges for them when it comes to this because you know sometimes they grow up in environments where they've had unstable housing or transportation from growing up in their family things like that it's been like a common occurrence if you will or a common deterrent can you speak to that a little bit this is a, a large topic. One thing that I want to point out is there is a genetic component to addiction, but there's also a cultural component to addiction. I have many patients who don't even realize that they're addicted to alcohol. It's common in their family. When you come home from work, you can have four to six beers and that's normal. I'm just going to have a six pack when I get home to relax from the day's work. And that was normative. It's more common amongst men than it is amongst women, but it does occur in women as well. But that is common and normative for their family. Whereas in medicine, we know that anytime you have five or more alcoholic beverages in one sitting, that's considered binge drinking, and it will cause damage to your tissues, including damage to your liver and to your brain. Anytime you have over 14 drinks in a week, that's considered unhealthy drinking for men, over seven in a week for women. 
So this is a common thing where, where you have families who have taught each other how to cope with the stresses of life by using a substance, whether it's going home and having that piece of pie or that piece of cake to make yourself feel better at the end of the day, or it's having a six pack of beer or that bottle of wine or going home and smoking a cigarette. Those are all substances that people use to reduce their anxiety and stress. Those are maladaptive coping mechanisms. With patients who, or with families who live in poverty or have uh, mental health exacerbations in their family, whether it's anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, delusional disorders, if they have these stresses or they live in a, God forbid, a domestic violence situation, all too common, these are situations which set up adverse childhood events. So there was a study done by Kaiser Permanente in the 1990s, which showed that with patients who have high levels of adverse childhood events, that's adverse events uh, age 18 or younger, those include domestic violence, family members who are in trouble with the law, family members who use or abuse drugs or alcohol, or emotional, sexual, physical harm, or unstable living environments with parents who are divorced, very common in America. These set up stressful environments that where patients are going to be more likely, one, to use drugs themselves or use alcohol unhealthily themselves, have higher rates of anxiety and depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, have higher rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, stroke, and heart attack. So these adverse events, these traumatic events will actually increase a person's likelihood of developing poor health outcomes, not just for mental health, but as we know, mental health is physical health. And so patients will have worse than diabetes and like I said, hypertension, heart disease. So with these adverse childhood events, patients learn maladaptive coping mechanisms. They learn to use substances to get rid of their anxiety, whether it's drugs, alcohol, nicotine from cigarettes, from chewing tobacco, uh, using sugar, caffeine, going home and saying, I'm stressed, I'm going to eat something. Uh, I'm stressed, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go get my coffee, I need my coffee before anybody can talk to me. These are all using substances as a maladaptive coping mechanism to overcome these traumatic events. And so those are passed down and become parts of culture. So like I said previously, Families will say it's totally normal to go home and have a six pack of beer at nights to calm down. That's just what dad does. Dad goes into the garage and he drinks until he's calmed down. And then he comes back into the family after. And that's his maladaptive coping mechanism that he teaches his children. Or that when you're angry, it's okay to push and hit. Or it's okay to put your fist through the wall. Those are domestic violence situations, but that's passed down as a cultural maladaptive coping mechanism. Then you have these cycles of maladaptive coping mechanisms, and you have these cycles of generational trauma that patients will only be able to get out of if they're educated that there is a different way, that there's a healthy way to cope with these strategies. Then there is help. As a healthcare system in America, we're not always good at it, but we, we are starting. We have community health workers, we have social workers, we have licensed behavioral specialists, we have licensed clinical social workers who can guide patients into treatments, who can guide them into counseling, who can guide them into educational opportunities. So when you have these maladaptive coping mechanisms, it's very common for school to seem like a lofty goal or to seem like a headache that you have to get through so that they'll leave you alone and you can finally get away from high school so you can just do what you wanna do. Unfortunately, when you don't have a high education, you're not going to have high 
income earning potential. So you're going to be limited in the amount of work you can do if you don't become a journeyman or get, you know, become a welder or a lineman or some, some sort of vocational skill, which is not taught in high school anymore. They don't do that anymore, unfortunately, for people who don't want to go to college. So then they'll be stuck in a cycle of poverty, just like their parents. Because they're stuck in a cycle of poverty, they won't have access to safe housing. They won't have access to safe, reliable transportation. They'll have food instability. They'll have healthcare instability. So all of these things compound to make patients less likely to be successful in their health journey, including their journey for recovery. So now what we say in a lot of the, the debates that we have in the healthcare community and in the recovery community is you can either pay in the beginning to help children learn the skills to be successful. That's education. That's healthcare. That's transportation. That's getting them safe daycare and uh, childcare, getting them access to healthy food, get them access uh, to everything they need to be safe and grow up healthy. Now, you can spend that now, which some estimates say it's as high as a million dollars raising a child in America over the course of their 18 years, or you're gonna pay for it later in poor health outcomes and in cycles of poverty and violence. So we have to choose as a community, not just healthcare community, but the, you know all of America needs to choose are we going to be willing to spend this money early on to help children be successful and healthy, or are we gonna spend it on healthcare at the end, jails at the end, and all of the, the money that we spend on helping people stop smoking and stop drinking and stop using? You know, when somebody comes to you for help and as that provider, it's juggling all of that, not just the misuse and what it's doing and wrecking their lives and, and taking a toll on them physically. But, you know, where does your role begin and end with reducing or eliminating these barriers? It's interesting. There's a perfect and then there's we're going to you know use whatever we have to help people out. Right. The perfect would be to have every point of access for a patient, the initial point of access. If we're going to use addiction care as an example, those points of access will be the ER when somebody has an emergency, let's say it's an overdose. So what do you do there? You set up a warm handoff program. Somebody comes in for an overdose. Let's say it's an overdose on an opioid. Then they are going to be connected to a peer recovery coach and a community health worker or social worker. Those uh, two points of contact will triage that patient, see if they are safe for outpatient treatment or they really need inpatient treatment, detox or rehab. Once they're triaged from there, they'll be given a medication to save their life. So that's usually buprenorphine. They're handed buprenorphine to help them from withdrawal, but also to protect them from future overdose. So they'll be given naloxone to save their life immediately. Then they'll be given buprenorphine to protect them for the next 24 hours. Then they'll be given a prescription for buprenorphine to follow up with a healthcare provider in the outpatient clinic in 24 to 72 hours. So that's one point of care. And then they'll be given the phone number for the peer recovery coach and the community health worker. So if they have a barrier to getting to their appointment, such as transportation or work or having to take care of their children, the community health worker will be able to give them access to resources in the community. If they're wanting to relapse or they're wanting to use and they all of a sudden become not safe for outpatient treatment they can contact their peer recovery coach that peer recovery coach can pick them up and take them to rehab so that's one point of contact it could be the the family primary care clinic if that's their first point of contact then a primary care clinic should have 
a behavioral health worker, whether it's community health worker, a social worker, they're on staff who when some sort of barrier is identified. So the maybe the patient was late. Why were you late? My car wouldn't start. Aha, they don't have access to reliable, safe transportation. Then you put in a referral for your community health worker. The community health worker goes and has a conversation with them about what they need to have safe, reliable transportation. My car won't start because the starter's broken. I don't have the money to fix the starter because I lost my job. The community health worker can help them with getting gainful employment and access to transportation while they're waiting to have that gainful employment and fix their car. Maybe they went to the pharmacy to go pick up their medication and they were told they can't have it. Pharmacies are in the bad habit of telling patients that they can't have their medication. They don't tell them why. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you go there and they say, um, we can't have the medication. Call your doctor's office. Call the doctor's office. Turns out it needs a prior authorization. Insurance companies love prior authorizations. They get up to 72 hours to make that determination on the prior authorization. So even if your family care or your primary care office does the prior authorization, you may not get that medicine right away. That's where a community health worker can come into play and can call the insurance company and expedite that request. Then call the pharmacy once that uh, request is authorized and get that patient the medication and even drive them to the pharmacy to pick up that medication. That's where an outside point of contact becomes of utmost importance. Definitely. Well, that is going to make for a great segue for our next, the second part of this series, which we're going to be talking about creating that circle of support with the community team approach and how in supporting the success of the people in recovery. So looking forward to our second part of this series. So thank you very much, Dr. Sarver. It was good talking to you in the conversation. Thanks for having me, Angelita. My pleasure. QSource would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to learn more, please visit us at qio.qsource.org. Visit our website for additional podcasts, videos, documents, and more. In addition to listening to QSource podcasts on our website, you can also find us on most media platforms, such as Apple, Google, Spotify, Podbean, and others.